vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week, my co-host, Will Nevin, and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I, I was going to shame our guest with a tweet I believe he has deleted in regard to uh, ongoing discourse, uh, but because he deleted it, I'll share my evening. So I've talked a little bit, I think, here in the pod about my Wednesday nights. Uh, I go out and do a do a pub run with uh, with some local runners, and I'd done my five miles. I was coming back to the bar. I uh, I had uh, had my iPad with me. I was going to finish up the readings. And I open the door and either I don't use enough force or I use too much force. But whatever happens, I, I walk smack into the door. It like it just it beans me right in the face. And I feel like a complete idiot walking into this crowded bar. And uh, my head fucking hurts right now, Matt. Uh, so uh, I don't think I'm going to be at my best, but I'll be at my crankiest. And I'm, I'm ready to do it. Let's do it. And and I'm going to say right now, this is a very important episode because this is our 23rd episode. And for those of you dum-dums who can't do math, 23 times 3, 69. Going to rank our 69th book tonight. And I'm, I'm cranky, one, yes, but two, fucking excited. Nice. <laughs> Before we introduce said guest, we do want to thank a new Patreon backer. Hey! Uh, yep, our newest uh, Damian Wayne tier backer is the ever wonderful fan of all the podcasts that we love, Asimov Fangirl. Thank you, Asimov Fangirl, for helping us keep this show up on its feet. Comics XF has many, many, many fans across the world. But she is chief among them. Absolutely. But as you said, we have a guest this week. Let's welcome this week's guest, uh, fellow writer at Comics XF, Corey Smith. Corey, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm uh, tired. I'm getting over my second bout with COVID. Ah, oh, shit. That's fucked yeah. up. You can only self-isolate so long when you've got a four-year-old who still has to go to school. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. We, we, us two childless guys will take your word for that. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys lucked out. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not gonna, not, not gonna complain. I, um, I will trade your one sick kid for seven cats. I'll take that. Sweet. <laughs> gonna My have some fucking fun with that kid. So. <laughs> we had to get rid of ours called Alfred a couple of years ago because. They were best friends, but Ollie was allergic. So. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep him in the room with the possum. I hope that's all right. <laughs> yeah, he's actually fine with possums. Hey, this this gonna work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's you know just Corey will ask our question that we ask all of our guests before we get into the the meat of the episode. What are your earliest memories and background with Batman as a character? So this is really upsetting. My first Batman memory is my first memory, period. Whoa. I was like two or three, chilling with my parents, watching Batman 66. 
And it was a Mr. Freeze episode or Mr. Zero, whatever they were calling him at the time. And for some reason, his costume, the bright silver aluminum foil looking shit, gave me the biggest fucking panic attack of my three-year-old life. So I remember just being absolutely traumatized by anything to do with Mr. Freeze until a few years later when I saw the seminal movie, Batman and Robin. And became <laughs> completely fucking obsessed. Wholesome story right there. Love it. So this week, we are looking at three stories from Black writers on Batman. And Corey wrote an excellent piece a little ways back about the, the next Batman. And so we figured Corey would be a great voice to have on this episode who isn't a couple of white guys, uh, which we appreciate because voices represent is important, especially when it comes to talking about different points of view, obviously. And Will and I, while we may agree and disagree on many things, come from a pretty similar point of view on some stuff. So, hey, 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 speak for yourself, buddy. New Jersey's a hellhole. <laughs> I love my state and I stand behind it. <laughs> We're going to start the night off with Blink. Blink is from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 156 to 158. The writer is Dwayne McDuffie, pencils by Val Simaics, inks by Dan Green, colors by James Sinclair and Digital Chameleon, letters by Kurt Hathaway, edited by Andy Helfer and Harvey Richards. The cover dates are August to October of 2002. Lee Highland, a grifter with a unique supernatural ability, witnesses a murder, and while attempting to do some good, winds up straight in Batman's sights. This is a story by Dwayne McDuffie. For those of you out there who might not be familiar with Dwayne McDuffie, the late, great Dwayne McDuffie, this man was a legend. Aside from being one of the founders of Milestone Comics and co-creator of Static, he was one of the major creative forces behind the Justice League cartoons and wrote a ton of comics. He also held numerous advanced degrees he was just an amazing writer and from everything that people say and i never unfortunately got to meet mr mcduffie was supposed to be just one of the nicest guys you'd ever run across so it's a treat to get one of mcduffie's very few batman stories on the show first time reading this for both of you or just you well it's your first time i i think correct yes and uh just to follow up on that cv Bachelor's degree in English from the University of Michigan, master's degree in physics, film school, New York University Tisch School of the Arts. This guy is smarter than, <laughs> than me. I, I won't say everybody in the room because that's unfair to both of you. I don't. But yeah, Dwayne McDuffie was the man. Have you read I think this I'm one? contractually obligated to dunk on him for a degree from University of Michigan, just <laughs> Ohio? Ah, uh, hey, it's, oh. uh, it's not his fault he went to that school up north. Yeah, we're not all perfect. <laughs> Had you read this one before, Corey? No. This is a Batman comic that came out at some point since 1989, so I had obviously read it at least once before. <laughs> so, first impressions. Dwayne McDuffie, fucking good at comics. To me, this was a really, really fun read. 
and a really good example of the Ghostbusters principle in that you do one thing that's totally fucking weird, bizarre, insane, and leave the rest of your world pretty consistent and reasonable. And you just go with it. I uh, grew up watching Justice League cartoon. McDuffie's always written a really solid Batman to me. So even though it was the first time reading this, it felt nostalgic. It felt like my childhood. Absolutely. Hell of a read. Yeah, it's set very early in Batman's career. There's a lot of the Legends of the Dark Knight stories where, I mean, Gordon is still addressed as Lieutenant Gordon. So we're right in that right around year one era here. So you're dealing with a Batman who does not have all of the crazy gadgets yet, nor does he have the backup that you will eventually, you know, see him. This story would have been entirely different if there had been a Bat family to back him up. But this is still the lone Dark Knight Avenger Batman. It's it's a detective story. Not necessarily a mystery because you're not trying to figure out the case necessarily, but it's a detective yarn. Uh, An example of Batman doing some great detecting. Following the classic Sherlock Holmes slash Spock aphorism, once all of the uh, fuck, I should I knew I should look it up. I'm going to fuck it. Fuck it up. You got it handy, Matt. Uh, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however, however improbable, improbable must be the truth. Exactly. There we go. Because our dual points of view in this series that run mostly are partially Batman and partially Lee Highland, the grifter who but not is, the grifter. No, not no, not that grifter. Con man of sorts, although his con game isn't, uh, you know, he's not exactly taking people in because he has a particular power. He is blind, but when he touches someone, he is then able to see out of their eyes, which he uses to collect people's bank account routing information and then just sort of, you know, takes what he needs. And this works until he touches a guy who then goes out and kills somebody. And it's interesting that Highland, when you first see him, it seems fairly amoral. But he immediately goes to try to save this woman's life. This guy's got a moral compass and he really does want to help people and do the right thing. Braver than I am when I see somebody with a big old knife. I mean, I'd like to think I'm that brave, but that's that takes cojones. Hey, he's he's a grifter, not a terrible human being. I also like that what could have become a really exploitative serial killer plot doesn't go there. I mean, it winds up being something equally creepy, but isn't just the same lazy oh there's a serial killer and he's out there and he's killing women and being a monster i mean he's still a monster but it's a different plot than what would you'd expect from just the opening of oh we're finding the dead bodies of women around gotham city and again it's another example of uh, of batman detecting like he notices these strange impressions on the ground and he deduces that oh that's a tripod for a camera surprise gotham has a burgeoning snuff film industry yay and and by surprise you mean this is gotham city and 
this is a place that has the auctions for the detritus of supervillains. So this is the least surprising thing I've seen in Gotham in quite a while. For sure. I love the, des- the, the design for Highland, just both his normal, just sort of dressing like a 50s sort of like extra out of guys and dolls with the hat and the checkered coat and the, the big black glasses. But when you remove him, it's not just that he's blind. He has no eyes. It's a really jarring visual, but is pretty neat. And we haven't mentioned this yet, but this comes back for a, for a sequel. It does. Isn't that correct? Yep. Don't blink. There, it's an, uh, three, again, a three or maybe a four-parter. You know, again, been a while since I read that. I know when DC was doing those 100-page giants that they did a bunch of those Legends of the Dark Knight, the stories they didn't collect, but also other small uncollected things they did blink and don't blink together in one little like $10 mini trade. It was a neat little buy. Was that also a McDuffie? Yeah, it's the same creative team. The same creative team comes back for another arc uh, a couple years later. I am trying to remember the exact. Yeah, uh, that was 164 to 167. So not terribly long after. Know what I'm doing after this. Val Simaics, who does the art on this, is a, a superhero artist. I mean, his stuff isn't flashy, but he's does a really solid Batman. He did some Justice League. Uh, he did JLA Wildcats with Grant Morrison. That's one of the things that jumps out at me when I think of Simaics. Uh, he drew DC 1 million. I'm pretty sure the, the core 1 million miniseries too, also with Morrison and did some X-Men in the nineties. He he's been around for a long time and draws a really solid superhero book. It, it's really easy to follow. It's got good, good bones. It was almost as comforting as the writing. The one Batman comic I was following as a kid, like, I follow two comics, Ultimate Spider-Man and the uh, 90s Tim Drake solo. Because sure. that was like the only thing I could find when I moved. And it felt a lot like that. I don't know if he did any of those, but it was a very similar style. I'm trying to think if Smakes did. I mean, it was, it was Tom Grummet. Ringo did some. Staz Johnson did some. He might, but he has, I can absolutely see the, the similarities in that, that they're in that same family the the johnson grummet smack stuff that not quite house style but that very clean dc style of the 90s because dc had a couple of kind of different house styles at that point and you know your your howard porter style your it seemed like each family sort of had like the superman titles had a vibe something we will possibly able to talk about with comics xf's other Corey, Corey mccreary when (laughs) Uh, she's on in a couple of weeks to talk about Batman Superman team ups, but the the Bat family had a couple had well, the Bat family wouldn't have really had a house style in the '90s because when you look at the three different books, you had Graham Nolan who was somewhere in this style on Detective. You had Shadow of the Bat that had all sorts of different styles, and then you had Kelly Jones who is nowhere in the style of anybody no. else. <laughs> The Bat Family was its own was its own thing. 
something else I liked in this story was you had a good little Bruce Wayne bit. And I, I think we've talked about it before, but I miss Bruce Wayne bits. In recent years in the Bat titles, Bruce Wayne does not get used as much, not since Grant Morrison. I mean, they had Bruce used a bunch during their run with the the Jezebel Jet stuff. But after he returned from the dead, there wasn't a lot of use for Bruce Wayne. And in the new 52, there was was lots of Bruce Wayne in Super Heavy. Well, yeah, yeah, (laughs) true. But Bruce Wayne, when he's a millionaire and doing, you know, Bruce Wayne stuff, We'll actually talk a little about that in our last story, because I have a theory about this, but it'll actually come up in the third story because it involves the character who's featured in that story and who doesn't really appear in the first two. The first couple issues of this are a lot of detect, I was going to say detectiving, which is not a word, detecting. And then you get into that third issue and it's a really nice action set piece for a lot of that issue with Batman and various goons and snipers and it's a a good showcase for semaics and it's a case of i don't know if mcduffie wrote marvel style or full script but either he leaned into semaic strength by letting him choreograph that or mcduffie could choreograph the hell out of a fight scene because those sequences look really nice and there's a uh a classic batman dangling a, a thug off a roof which Oh, speaking of comforting, there's a you know, Batman's gonna take, you know, try to get information out of somebody. That's how Batman does it. If I ever get knocked out by running into a door, that's how I want to wake up, just dangled <laughs> over the edge of a roof. Preferably, I would Batman. advise not running into doors. <laughs> One star. I do like that the issue ends with a no good deed goes unpunished as Batman now knows exactly what Highland is up to and gives him a very classic Batman, don't do it, I'm watching. I would love to go back and look, the letterer on this book is Kurt Hathaway, who does two really distinct lettering styles for Highland's narration and Batman's. And that cursive for Batman, A, as cursive goes, is really understand legible cursive comic book lettering i didn't hate it which means it was great (laughs) exactly (laughs) and it makes me want to go back and see what other things hathaway has lettered for batman because i kind of recognize that particular batman lettering style and i i've had a, a a hectic week so i didn't have time to do some of that kind of research but i was like i'm i'm curious to see what other stuff this guy has done with Batman. You did a really impressive job. It might be the only time I've read a book with just cursive narration that didn't take me out. And I was reading it on my phone in the middle of work. So I was like, (laughs) barely. If my boss is listening to this, I was paying complete attention. In the finest of comics XF traditions, doing shit on your phone. Exactly. (laughs) Though we would be proud. Oh, yeah. Believe me, I, I read a good part of issue two in stopped traffic. So it's like, I try not to do that, but it's like literally all the cars were in park. And I'm like, well, it looks like I'm going to be here for a while. Let's let's try to do this. <laughs> yeah, I hate my commute. It's, it's why I work from home most of the time. Again, New Jersey is not a nice place. At Pennsylvania. It was Pennsylvania traffic. I crossed the border. 
Although I will say, for those of you who don't know, New Jersey is one of the few states where all the tolls are getting out. You never have to pay a toll coming into New Jersey. You always got to just pay the toll getting out. Something my wife, a native Pennsylvanian, never lets me forget. I mean, we could, the villains here are fairly generic sort of guy who make, who's making snuff films and rich guy who is consuming the snuff films. They're not particularly interesting characters, but they're there to serve the purpose of the story. It's really about Batman and Highland. Highland shows up again in Don't Blink. I mean, that's the obviously, and it would be, I, there's any number of reasons why it's a true and painful shame that Dwayne McDuffie passed as young as he did, but I would have loved to see him do another arc or two with this character. The second one, as I remember, is more of a, a secret agent, sort of like the somebody finds out and they're trying to get Highland to work for some shady government organization to use his power, which makes a lot of sense. But it's been, again, it's been a while since I read that one. But that's, I think, the, the broad strokes of the beginning of that story. Hey, it's, it's, it's an important power. If you can take down the Enterprise with it, you know, you could do a lot of things. It's it's a great power. It's it's used really well here, and it's the kind of power that a guy with this flexible morality can use to the highest extent. And strangely enough, it does tie into our next story. Yes, there is weird connective tissue between this and the next story, and then the next story and the story after that, but not necessarily between all three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we're getting ready to talk about the next story, I think it might be time. It's time to put blank on the big board. Okay, so we are currently at 66 stories on the big list. Uh, story number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 15 is Batman Adventures Mad Love. Story number 30 is Batman Year Three. From Batman Volume 1, numbers 436 to 439. 45 is Mad Men Across the Water. From Showcase 94, numbers 3 to 4. Number 60 is Scarecrow. From Batman Volume 1, numbers 523 to 524. And pulling up the rear remains Superman and Batman (laughs) versus vampires and werewolves. Uh, Pulling up the rear. About to be number 69. Oh, yeah. Oh, it will be. Oh, yeah. We don't want to spoil too much, but there is nothing tonight that is going to wind up below that. Nope, one. nope, nope. And I got that joke this week and next week, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use it as much as I can. So, where are we thinking here? This is a very fun story. It's a very good story. It is not a portentous, important Batman story. I think it falls somewhere in that mid 20s to mid 30s range oh 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 are you thinking higher oh that's that's mean maddie lasers mean why is that this is a good fucking book oh it's a very good you want to put it in 20s 30s well okay but let's look at the top 20 now let's look at some of the things we got in that top 20 we got lost episode in there we got beautiful people i mean those those are good right we love them we still love them but we're not gonna 
say that you know they're the best books of all time. They're really That's, good. We got we got Bloodstorm at twenty two. This okay. has got this is better than Bloodstorm. You know, I'll give you that. I will absolutely. I was see for me. I was looking at some of the other stories that I view as fun Batman stories, which are a little lower than that. Stuff like Fear for Sale and Doomsday Book and Brave and the Bold. But I mean, I knew this was better than those. But yeah, I can I can see where you're going there. So Bloodstorm is at 22. Above that is Cry for Blood, the Batman Huntress miniseries. Better than that. Yeah, this is, is compact. It is very much a Batman story. Okay. I'll say this. I don't think we can put it above Tower of Babel at 18. You just like Tim Drake at 19. I know you. I know you. (laughs) I'm saying it still could wind up above 19. I'm just saying I don't think it can beat Tower of Babel. That's fair. That's fair. So sounds like going in at 20. Well, let's say because number 19 is... Identity crisis, not that one. <laughs> First story where Tim Drake takes on the identity of Robin and gets his new costume. That's 19. <sighs> Matt, I know you. I know you don't uh, want to put it above a Tim Drake story. But I'm going to have to put things in above Tim Drake stories eventually. And this is a Dwayne McDuffie story. This is a Batman doing detective stuff story, which, you know, is something else I love. I think this is our new number 19. I think All right. this is, it's more streamlined than Identity Crisis. We will get some Tim Drake stories that you will have to fight me to not put ridiculously high. You hear that, Dan? We're going to fight. We're going to fight. Matt promises. <laughs> our next story is on the outside. This is from Detective Comics, Volume 3, numbers 983 to 987. The writer is Brian Edward Hill. Pencils by, and pardon me on this, these names, I might get these wrong, and there we go. Uh, Miguel Mendoza and, uh, on four of the issues, and Philippe Briones on 986. Inks by Diana Egea on the Mendoza issues, and Briones inking himself on 986. A colorist by Adriana Lucas. Letters by Sal Cipriano, edited by Jamie S. Rich, Chris Conroy, and Dave Wilgosh. Uh, cover dates are August to October of 2018. A new villain calling himself Karma comes to Gotham and begins to hunt down the sidekicks of Batman, saying that they make him weaker. Batman, still facing the fallout of his Gotham Knights project, goes to Metropolis to recruit Black Lightning to help train his new generation of sidekicks and to face down Karma. This, as I said, takes place after uh, James Tiny and the Fourth's long run on Detective, the Rebirth era. And so some of this is still sort of dealing with some of the reverberations of that. Uh, For those of you out there who sort of came into Tiny and on Batman on his Batman run and didn't check out his Detective Comics run, that is a run worth checking out. Tim Drake! Lots of Tim Drake! <laughs> uh, I'll, again, I'll say for the record, his Batman is maybe the worst thing he's done in comics. His, his creator-owned stuff tends to be, I mean, 
your, your departments of truths, your something's killing the children's, your winds, your backstagers. Also, Joker. Joker is is mainstream and is excellent. And his, I loved his Detective Comics run. I mean, he he did a, oh so much good stuff there. But that's that's for he a conversation. Yes, he really did. He wrote a that was a really really great Clayface in that book. But so this is still dealing with some of the fallout of that run. This is in many ways as much a Black Lightning story as it is a Batman story and is still dealing with some of the wonky continuity of the DC universe at that time because suddenly Black Lightning has no history with Batman, which is weird. And this is the first appearance of the Outsiders, although that now, of course, has been completely retconned back into previously existing and if we talk too much more about continuity we're all gonna go cross-eyed oh so, just wait until the last story there was an editor's note for um dark metal and i just mentally checked the fuck out <laughs> oh yeah good call good call yeah it's a weird it was there's some weird choices made with the continuity here and I'm not that I'm not putting on Hill. I'm fairly sure that a lot of that is editorial. It's like, okay, this is the status quo of these characters now, and we need to just run with it. And Black Lightning is a character who got who he's one of the characters who got the real short end of the stick in the new 52. I mean, his reintroduction was in DC's short-lived anthology. His reintroduction was in DC's short-lived DCU Presents where it suddenly was him and Blue Devil hanging out, which mm-hmm. was a weird choice. And also, despite the fact that the Outsiders, I'm fairly certain, showed up in Batman Incorporated, which was technically a New 52 book. They definitely showed up in the pre-New 52 Batman Inc. at the very end. And then I'm pretty sure were mentioned and popped up somewhere in the New 52, despite them now not existing anymore? Question mark. But we, we really can't spend time talking about the, the continuity here anymore except maybe how it deals with the specific relationship between Bruce and Jefferson which yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get there because there's there's a lot of stuff here and, and I'll jump into just to make two quick big picture points one uh, I think this can be safely categorized as a fill-in run on detective mm-hmm. but it was also a pilot slash jumping off point for Hills, Batman and the outsider series. So it's, it's trying to do several things here. And generally I thought it worked for what it was trying to do. Yes. It's a, it's a good story. It tells some interesting stuff about Batman and black lightning. I kind of wish they hadn't. Some of the, the other sidekicks didn't, work as well in here very specifically barbara gordon who is way out of character and serves no real purpose in the story and and the other characters their basic direction and attitude toward her is shut up barbara and it's strange because she's not even a part of batman and the outsiders duke and cassandra are on that team as is katana who pops up towards the end but Barbara has nothing to do with any of that. It read like Hill wanted to use spoiler, but had to pull it out at the last minute. It, that's possible because it he might have started writing this before Tinyan finished up his run. And when Tinyan had Steph 
ride off with Tim into the sunset. It's like, oh, the same way that little Gotham had Katana clearly in the place of Cassandra Kane, because that was the point Mm -hmm. when DC had Cassandra as persona non grata, as well as Stephanie, because they just didn't want to talk about those characters, which was a weird choice. Karma is an interesting villain, but his origin is oh hills batman is the really hardcore bastard batman who various writers use but i have some some quibbles with batman using scarecrow fear toxin on random arms dealer i i read him more as like a sadistic dictator type the karma or batman (laughs) Take your pick, right? Uh, no, um, karma seemed to me more like a um, uh, like a warlord slash tyrant slash fairly bad dude. It seemed like he was more than just an arms dealer. Karma uh, was very explicitly like torturing kids and watching, making them watch him kill their parents in front of him. Yeah, which for Batman, known orphan. But when when Batman Children first grow up with their parents, when Batman first exposes him to the fear toxin in Markovia, though he just I didn't get that impression there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's on like that same page. Oh, maybe I mean mm-hmm. I I might have missed that. Okay, then then that makes that makes it, if not permissible, at least make a little more sense. Still an international incident. Yeah, and speaking of the the numerous references to Markovia is a big old outsider's Easter egg. And and Markovia's had a rough time of it in the past few years in comics. Between this and then Batman and the Outsiders, where, you know, Raish is in there, to Leviathan, making it Leviathan Nation in the Checkmate and Superman titles. It's like, boy, Markovia is not the place to be. I'll backtrack to go back to the third, I think third issue in this where karma is created, question mark. Batman says, the children call you the man of fear. You make them watch you torture their parents. Now fear has come for you. The man who created that formula wanted to leave people insane. What I've given you won't break your mind, not forever. And he is then exposed to scarecrow gas and bats pick out his eyes. I guess see, I remember there was a line towards the end when Batman's facing down karma and he calls him just like a little man and nothing. You know, I guess I read that and had forgotten that bit and just read him as, you know, just some other guy that Bruce had smacked around. He, he's not Mr. Bloom. He's not like some random dude. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you one thing. When I was reading this, just judging by like the general like kind of costume and kind of attitude before we got into you know the killing, I was like, "Is that you, Ghostmaker?" There is a similar look. Yeah, I will. I can go with that one. There is a similar look. Anyway, I interrupted you, brother Matt. I'm sorry. No, no, please. I'm I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I made that mistake. Because it makes that bit make a lot more sense. I wonder how much of this was some meta commentary on Hill's part with the the sidekicks and do they make Batman weaker or not? 
not necessarily that Hill believes it, but that that's something that gets out there in the fan discourse every now and then. Like, oh, Batman's supposed to be this dark Avenger and he's got all these kids. And mm. part of this is pointing out that Batman is in some ways stronger with his family. I also, having now reread this, would love for Hill to come back and write a Black Lightning solo because he gets that character's voice beautifully. The teacher and the hero. Oh, that's to Tony Isabella. Ah, God damn it! I was going to say that. <laughs> you, can't, you can't come on my show and steal my bits, motherfucker. Jesus. Oh, but yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, I thought that this was the, like, it wasn't until Batman and the Outsiders that Isabella specifically right. came at Hill, but it's like, it's oh, dude. Specifically saying that Black Lightning was Batman's house Negro oh. was just an absolutely fucking wild take. Yeah. What? what, what? God, you're, Tony Isabella. At what point did it become logical for a white creator, even a white creator who created a seminal black character, to come in a black ca- a black creator and say that kind of thing? I, I don't know that guy's deal, but I know that he has exactly one speed on Twitter, and it is, <laughs> I created Black Lightning, goddammit. It's mine, 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 mine. That's it. I would be very curious to have seen, because I don't remember seeing anything in the discourse about it, uh, Isabella's reaction to John Ridley's other history of the DC universe use of Black Lightning, because, oh, I don't know. I think I saw, like, one thing on his opinion, and he was not a fan at all. However, I don't give a shit. He's wrong. (laughs) I think this is a great take on Black Lightning. Uh, I really enjoyed this use of the character. He, he stands very much next to Batman and is willing to stand up to him. He also has a couple of moments where he uses that teacherliness, the bit at the very end where he says, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you before but it wasn't your fault is a really heart touching moment and yeah i mean outside of probably alfred at one point when bruce was young i don't think that's something that bruce hears very often i don't know how it processes in bruce's survivor guilt laden mind but it's nice that he pointed it out I did appreciate that Bruce was just like, yeah, no, not acknowledging that, moving on. <laughs> yep. Here for the mission. Look, it's dangerously close to having a feeling. I'm going to no-sell that. Oh, yeah. I, I will jump back to, uh, to the last point on Tony Isabella. A tweet from June of last year talking about other history of the DC oh, Universe. No. no, no. I love when my creation, which is, again totally on brand for him i love when my creation is written by someone who respects and understands the character mm. okay that's yeah I mean that, <laughs> but, but that's also completely not acknowledging uh trevor von eden which nope. yeah. he it's not matter. like comic creators comic characters have you know more than one creator 
especially, you know, not at all erasing the black creator of the black character. Not not at all. It might have been the show that he was complaining about then. Mm, that's possible. Or um, possibly Young Justice, because... That, yeah. Uh, I am not going to interrupt the show again with another Tony Isabella tweet, so we're just going to have to let it go. That's good. I will never know. Oh, okay. Oh. And jump back to uh, dangerously close to having an emotion. That exact fucking line is what Bruce said about Barbara when she was mad about something. Just like, ignore her. It's just an emotion. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hill's Batman is kind of harsh. That is not an uncommon take on Batman. I prefer my Batmans to have a little more... I mean, listen, he's never going to be Superman. He's never going to be, you know, smiling at the crowd. But especially when it comes to things like anger and grief, Bruce understands those emotions. And there are more stories than I think people admit or realize with Bruce comforting victims. And while we don't get that here... He's not someone who's completely shut off from his emotions. He's just we, not good with them. We do get that just a little bit in the story where he basically knows the backstory for like the front desk guy at yes. Wayne, uh, Wayne Tower. Yes. Mark. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that was a good example of Bruce, despite maybe having this, this gruff exterior, really not being an asshole. That's a great moment. I think he could do that with most of the employees at Wayne Enterprises. I think he knows who everybody is from the CEO down to the third floor custodian. It's well within his mental ability to memorize that kind of stuff. And I like that. Karma's weapon of choice or gear of choice is a psychic uh, a helmet that grants him telepathy and generally I'm like okay you know Duke, Cassandra sure I'm a little iffy on the fact that Bruce when he realizes the guy's a telepath doesn't have some way to counteract that we've seen him do that and Martian Manhunter shows up at the beginning of this most powerful telepath in the DC universe who Bruce hangs out with on a regular basis I mean, at the end, he does the whole weaponizing his memories thing, which is straight out of Morrison's Final Crisis Batman tie-ins. Okay, I, I had a I had a question to ask about that uh, about that page, which is a great splash. I can pick out all of these because again, we got we got the pearls, we got you know Jason Todd being beaten to death, we got Raish, Bane. The one I cannot identify. What is the panel at the bottom right? Okay, I'm bringing up the issue. I, I guess, is that just supposed to be Martha? I think it might. If it's a like random blonde woman. I think it might have supposed to, might supposed to be Martha Wayne. I am hopping into the issue. What's the page number on that? Uh, 17. Because if that's supposed to be Martha and a young Bruce, they could have done a much better job with making that look like a young Bruce. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is supposed to be 
Martha and young Bruce. And yeah, that does not look like Bruce Wayne from from behind. So I answered my own fucking question. All right. All right. <laughs> good for you. Uh, yeah, good for me. I also have to say, I have this feeling like there were some rewrites on more than just that, because that last cover has zero to do with anything going on in this issue, other than one line about Amanda Waller getting some files out of from Brainiac during the No Justice event. But then that whole cover is like, there's supposed to be something else going on here that there needed to be a rewrite. And they just didn't have the time to come up with another cover, did they? You are correct, sir. I love having these uh, these DC house ads. It's such a little time capsule of what was going on. Reminded me I need to actually finish Justice League Odyssey at some point. Wow, that's a series that... I finished that series. I, I don't remember a ton of it, but I did finish that series. So we got, uh, we got plugs for uh, different Bendis books. Uh, Jinx World stuff, stuff that has since yeah. moved on to Dark Horse. <laughs> uh, a couple of White Knight house ads. Mm. Uh, just a couple of weeks now, Matt. Yeah, we're getting there. Uh, uh. One other character that I kind of, I think Hill wrote a fine Duke. Cassandra was a, a little bit, the broken English on Cassandra and that's far from the only kills far from the only writer who doesn't necessarily get Cassandra's vocal ticks. It, it's not that her sentence structure is as poor as it is here. It's just that she doesn't speak often. Yeah. That was the big problem in this issue. Uh, she spoke way too fucking much. And I think you could possibly have her English be as splintered as it is if you didn't have her speak as much, but with her speaking as much as she was, it was very obvious how broken the English was. And that comes off not great, especially if you don't realize why she's speaking that way. Yeah. It's, it was really surprising to me upon rereading this because I felt he really nailed her voice in his uh, Outsiders run. Yes. That run, I mean, I guess they, and it's interesting, they do follow up on some of the stuff in this run with Markovia in there, but for what seems to be like the central thing that's been, it really only comes up as kind of a minor afterthought. That's really a big old League of Assassins story for most of that run. Mm -hmm. Lots of Lady Shiva and Cassandra. I liked, I really liked that, the, the, his, his take on Shiva in that run too. Yes. We'll get to that run. Uh, One portion I really enjoyed in this arc. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. Bruce was trying to do some detective stuff, and he was talking to Alfred, and he was all, people with this condition can just instantly memorize anything that happened to them and experience their memories. And Alfred was like, so you have that? No, I'm going to go drive and trigger my adrenaline. A lot of writers would have said, no, he can just perfectly do that. So it was refreshing a little to see. Anybody have anything else to add on this? Sounds like it's time to put on the outside on the big board. Okay. Well, until this doesn't beat Blink. I, I liked Blink more than I like this. Are we on a consensus on that one? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, 
where are we are, now here are we in the low 20s 30s yes i would say that it's better than blades yeah i, I always go for matt's weak spots <laughs> <laughs> with Tim Drake and with Blades. It's his soft little underbelly. Um, uh, I'd say it's better than Super Heavy at 35. Yes. Yes. More of the characters are in character than Super Heavy. There's less bending over backwards to get the characters to fit the plot. Specifically Jim Gordon in Super Heavy who there's a lot of work to get Gordon to fit into being Batman. What assholes would make a list of Batman stories and have super heavy at the middle? Because the Alfred stuff in there is tremendous. I know, I know. And there's that one issue that's spectacular. I know, I know. I was there for that episode. If that were just that one issue, that one issue would be up real high. Oh, yeah, it would be top five. But that a lot of that, the, all the stuff around it drags that story down to the middle of the list. And I don't think Super Heavy will stay in the middle of the list. I think as we build more and more stories, it'll keep kind of slowly ticking downward. But for now, it's, it's solidly in the middle of the list. Uh, above that is Secret of the Waiting Graves, the first Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Batman story. A perfectly Bronze Age Batman <laughs> Just sort of proto Rachel Ghoul stuff in there. I think this, this beats that. Yeah? Yeah. Does it beat the Dixon Armstrong Dick Grayson Robin Year One annual? My gut is to always say fuck Chuck Dixon, so yeah. There is that. Uh, 408 to 411, the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd. Uh, my gun is a lot of fun. He is. And it does something. It does something interesting with Jason Todd, who till that point had just been Dick Grayson with red hair and parents killed by Killer Croc, not Tony Zuko. I think we drop it in there. I think we Sounds drop good. It at our new number 33 in between the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd and the Robin Year One annual. And now the final story of the night is I Am Batman Begins slash Fear State. This is I Am Batman numbers zero to three. The writer is John Ridley. Okay, you're going to have to bear with me on these credits because there's a God lot God be of with you. Issue zero... Pencils by Travel Foreman, inks by Norm Rapmund. Issue one, pencils and inks by Olivier Coipel. Uh, issues two to three, art by Steven Segovia with inks by Segovia. Issue three also has pencils by Christian Ducey. Deuce again, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your names. If I'm mispronouncing your names, Please correct me and come on the show. Colors on issues zero and two to three by Rex Locus, Alex Sinclair on issue one. Letters by Dave Lonfear on zero and Troy Pateri on one to three. Edited by Ben Abernathy on all of them with Dave uh, Wilgosh on issues one to three. Cover dates are October of 2021 to January of 2022. 
Uh, to point it out for those of you who aren't familiar with the parlance, cover date is the date on the book, not the date it is released. Usually cover dates are two months in advance of when they actually are released. So this book did not just come out within the past four weeks. This story is the, not quite the origin, but the taking up of the mantle of the new Batman, Jace Fox, as we settle into his status quo and he takes part in the Fear State event that took place through the Bat books. This is uh, clearly far and away the most recent story that we have done on this podcast. This is written by John Ridley, who wrote uh, The Other History of the DC Universe, all of the Jace Fox Batman stuff, and uh, American Way, which I've read the original, haven't read the sequel yet, and the original is tremendous. Uh, A period piece set in the 60s with a discreet team of superheroes created for their own little pocket and is about both oh god it's been a long time since i read it but i'm pretty sure there's some red scare stuff in there but also the fact that the one black superhero has to be completely covered because the world isn't ready for a black superhero which we get a little bit of in this story yes we do and and that's not even taking into account all of the kind of the meta drama behind this book. I mean, reading this, I think it's fair to say some part of this, some core of this would have been a new Batman number one. Like, is that fair to understand mm-hmm. what the plan was at the time? The, Without question. Yeah, this would have been the 5G Batman stuff if... 5G had happened the way it had initially been conceived, which is why when we were talking about uh, Future State Next Batman, it felt so weird compared to so much of the other Future State stuff, because I think so much of that was stuff that Ridley had planned for later in the run or had planned for there to be stuff in the works before future state had been conceived. And now he was sort of trying to jam that into this future state book because we talked about it. Corey, have you read now have you read all of the future state and the second son, the, the stuff before this with Jace? Yes, finally. For me, that felt more than most of the other future state books, if not all the other future state books, like there was supposed to be, there was so much going on in next Batman future state that you didn't get as much time with Jace because you had all the stuff with Chubb and Whitaker, the cops that Ridley introduced. You had so much stuff with the other Foxes. And so you didn't get as much of Jace as you would have liked and it feels much clearer after after Second Son and after this that oh that's because that was a discrete arc that Ridley probably had planned and now is like this is the best thing to insert because it's a fun little you know Batman trying to make his way across a hostile Gotham story that I can work into this future state thing but I didn't trim out all of these side plots and now it's kind of a whole lot and to, to my eye there's there's just not a way to read this 
in any kind of continuity that makes sense because there's a line in this series that says Batman's been gone for six years. Right. That that does not match up with anything else going on. So I, I think if you're gonna read, you know, these four books, you just have to pretend that they exist in their own universe or they exist in the parallel universe where uh, you know, future state slash fear state happened as Scarecrow intended it for happen, and everything, you know, Gotham is totally this police state, and Batman has been gone for all this time. Despite them trying to make it sort of work with what's going on in Fear State and other places, which is weird. Because I feel like that line was something that was probably from an earlier draft script. Because remember, Seer, when Seer pops up in Fear State Alpha, the broadcast she sends out is Oracle's like, Batman is dead. So that makes sense with that. But the six years thing is like, wait, no, it, that, that line doesn't jibe with the other stuff. How would you feel if you had sort of, if you decided that this was your f- introduction to these characters, you saw, oh, I am Batman number zero. You didn't read Future State. You didn't read Second Son. There's a lot going on in the beginning of this book that you don't have a lot of reference for if you hadn't read any of the stuff before that. And let me point out in, uh, in Zero, the art is pitiful. Yes. Like it is, it is embarrassing for a big two uh, publisher to put out art of this quality and it gets a little bit better over the course of the the four issues but zero is just it's i i am embarrassed for dc to put out a book of that quality but hey, meanwhile go, no, go no 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 you you're yes please i was just gonna say um i spoke about this a bit when i was reviewing um Second Son, the art in that was just atrocious, but I chalked it up to being a digital first comic. This, I was missing the art in Second Son. On that first issue or throughout the... Just that first issue. Okay, yeah. I mean, you've got Coipel on the next one, and then Segovia, both of whom are... I mean, this isn't quite... It's interesting, because this must have been done in parallel with Segovia working on Hellions. But Mm. I don't know if, if... somebody different was inking him on Hellions or maybe it, I don't know if he inked himself on Hellions or maybe it was different colorist. This didn't have the same crispness that the stuff on Hellions had, or maybe it's just, he was trying to draw a little darker and a little different for the, the Batman-ness of it. This story is very, very, ripped from the headlines Mm, yep there's a lot of commentary on both QAnon I mean the the stuff that Seer is doing with the moral authority is straight out of QAnon with the you know making these people feel special and making them believe in these conspiracy theories Uh, the police putting down a peaceful demonstration in Alleytown. Morris Caulfield, who kills anarchy, is 
very clearly a Kyle Rittenhouse analog. My time you got to mix up because the past few weeks have been fucking insane. What was like the uh, breaking down crying scene of him in the courthouse? Was that from would those timelines have matched up? I'd imagine they'd have gone to print before then. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that would have been before this. But horrifyingly prescient. Yeah. A, a couple of much less painful little moments. Uh, this is one of the few books in the bat titles recently that referenced the fact that Montoya used to be the question. Mm-hmm. That's been kind of ignored. I mean, she was the question not too long ago in Greg Rooka's Lois Lane miniseries. But here there's she gets a line when she's talking about, I've got a lot of experience with complicated questions. Like, oh, kind of a bit of bump. Also, this, okay, now here we're going to, Matt's going to go off on a bit of a tangent. Oh. You're going to have to bear with me on this one. I, I got a tangent after this one. Okay, because this is probably our first story that has had a, a large role for Lucius Fox, which is interesting because you know we've done nearly 70 stories, and I always I feel like this we should have had... 69th story. Nice. Uh, I do feel like we should have had more Lucius before this. But I have a, a, a very specific thesis in mind about when Bruce Wayne stopped being something important to the Bat titles. And I believe that is when Lucius Fox, when it was established that Lucius Fox knew Bruce Wayne's identity. Because for many, many years, Lucius was the Bruce Wayne supporting character. He wasn't the Batman supporting character. He didn't know the secret until it became established in the Nolan trilogy. Lucius was always, he wasn't the science guy. He was the CFO. He was a business whiz and a financial wizard. He wasn't a scientist. But since that was one of these things that kind of came over from Batman Begins in the Dark Knight. And at that point, Bruce Wayne no longer had a supporting cast. What love interests Bruce Wayne had were Batman's love interests. It was Talia and it was Catwoman, except during that period when he forgot that he was Batman and yet Julie Madison. But still, that's the exception that proves the rule. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not like, blaming Lucius Fox for this. Obviously, I'm blaming the way writers have treated him, but without Bruce Wayne having any characters to interact with that don't know he's Batman, even Jim Gordon, then what's the point in you needing Bruce Wayne? He's not a character anymore. He's a plot device who can occasionally walk across the stage when you need him to do something for Batman. But you no longer need to have any Bruce Wayne as a character in the stories anymore. Batman can't sign adoption papers. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Yeah. Not today, anyway. He's working on it. Companies first and vigilantes. And that leads me into my point. So I've had the misfortune of reading entirely too much Sean Gordon Murphy. And the last Ridley book I read gave me the same impression as this one in that they are two writers who tend to grasp onto labels. And 
each time I read the word mask in the story, the punchier I got. It's just, yeah, he's talking about vigilantes and he's talking about, you know, these, these capes acting outside of the system. And it's a very complex idea, but it just gets boiled down to, we don't like masks. And he repeats that word over and over and over again. And it becomes exhausting. And I just don't think that that's not how these people would talk. That's not how they would relate to each other. Like you wouldn't see you know, just some person on the street screaming about masks. The, you know, they would be, be screaming about specific masks or whatever. And that was very tiring in this book and reminded me very much of a very bad author. And I don't think Ridley is a bad author, but again, it made me punchy. It worked a lot better in Future State, where it was just an established part of that bad future. But with the messy continuity in this, it just seemed... I haven't read a Batman book that's current, apart from the Jace Fox stuff, for the past two or three years. So I'm not sure what the main line is like right now, but it just didn't seem normal. They, they've not adapted adopted that particular bit of parlance in the other books as much as here. I think they might have used it a little bit during Fear State, but it was not as heavily part of the overall lexicon as it is in this book. We mentioned before that some little ties between these. This story also mentions Katana and Markovia. Yeah, that was weird coming up again. Yeah, right right at the beginning, it was like, oh, wow, right at the beginning of Zero, right after I finished reading on the outside, it's like, oh, hey, Westbury, we saved you in Markovia. It's like, oh, boy, it's really not a good time to be Markovia. I will say, there are a lot of characters in this book. This book feels like an ensemble, almost, between Jace and all of these mysterious characters from Jace's past who we still haven't gotten a really good feel for to Chubb and Whitaker to all the different members of the Fox family. It's pretty busy. And I feel like we could have gotten, I would have rather gotten a little more with Jace than all of these other characters because Jace is a, pretty interesting character on his own and i feel like we're losing some of that because we don't get as much time with him when you have to spend half of an issue with chubb and whitaker Mm -hmm. whitaker who's a very generic gotham cop and chubb who's a little less generic but is still sort of that anti-vigilante Gotham cop that we've seen plenty of that example over the years. I mean, she's way less slovenly than Harvey Bullock. (laughs) She's different. And isn't that arc always the same? Eventual grudging acceptance? Yeah, I I mean, I'm just reading some Batwing stuff before this too, so I've got Luke Fox on the brain. I, I really wish we had seen at some point Batwing and Jace Fox's Batman interact in one of these stories. And now that Jace is heading to a new city in the next arc of his book, I I wonder if we're going to get that interaction. It's also still strange that Luke has given up being Batwing, maybe, kind of, sort of. It doesn't... 
that hasn't been particularly clear either. Yeah, and we, we don't get that much with the foxes in here, except for them to pop up and for Lucius to berate Jace, for Tanya to take on this case, for Luke to be kind of a jerk, and for Tam to be... Yeah, yeah. And for Tanya to be in a coma. There's a character that's gotten the short end of the stick. Yeah. We got a lot of the Fox family in Second Son. So I think this is the most focus Jace has had in any of his books. Yeah. Almost seemed like it's a secondary character at times. I'm I'm kind of hoping that moving him to New York for at least the next arc, if not the foreseeable future of the book, might give him time to shine because now the foxes won't be around, the GCPD won't be around, that it'll just be Jace in a new city. Although I would not be surprised if Hadia, the sort of love interest that we see here, as she mentioned, she's got to be going back to New York in this run doesn't become sort of the cornerstone of the new supporting cast that he'll have to be building in New York. I got to say, poor anarchy. That's a a fairly established bat villain who just sort of is is killed off panel and is then just a plot device for this story. Which is a story he really would have fit in with. Really? this This is some anarchy shit. Yeah, I, if he hadn't been killed right there, I would have assumed he was Seer. Mm-hmm. Ridley's Not like, all right, who can I kill off? That's what I thought was going on. Yeah. And this, by the way, is in, this was the first book where Seer is mentioned by name. Before that, Seer was just the anti-Oracle or something else in the other books. And you eventually get explained in another book later on when Seer gets a name and they explain how they know the name. But here it was just like it was an established part of the lexicon. And I remember being like, wait, what? Do they think Oracle is Seer? Because they hadn't called Oracle Seer anywhere else before. Which is a frankly a problem I had with Fear State as a whole. There was no really decent reading order and the books all sort of just kind of came out. So you were never sure when things were taking place, which, I mean, well, as we cover Fear State, we will cover Fear State in its discrete arcs. But as an event as a whole, that was a big problem with this event. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we joke about metal, um, but at least it had that main series with tie-ins. And you had that with Fear State with Alpha and Omega, but those were just bookends and you were just kind of left to your own devices in between. Do we have anything else on this book? I think my final note before I uh, toss it over on to, uh, to Corey, I think this is a failure of editorial. The art is a good sign of that in terms of what the priorities were. Uh, we know the drama behind the scenes. I think Ridley probably did about as best a job as he could under the circumstances. And um, I think that's, that's my charitable reading of this book. It, 
is honestly the one I enjoyed the most. I don't see myself going back to it at least for a couple of years. It was very, not to be the comics need to be more mature and profane all the time thing, but the captions constantly going into Grawlix, the symbol swearing, it just kind of took me out of it. Especially because like last time I read a Catwoman number one, they were dropping shit. And it was just like, where's the line there? Cats do that, you know. I will say I really liked Jace's narration as Batman this time around. um, Because he wasn't Batman in Second Son at all. But um, he made a good Batman. He does. And I think there are some interesting points he makes about his Batman needing to be a Batman of the people. A Batman down there to let people know that Batman is there, which is a very different attitude than Bruce has. Bruce has always been focused on the criminal element and stopping them, even if probably internally his attitude is to stop them to make sure no one else suffers. He still has to focus on stopping the suffering, not on fixing a broken system, which is Jace's whole thing. I will say the um, him specifically using the fact that he's not Bruce and specifically the fact that he is not white to intimidate the dude was fucking hilarious. There was a point where someone was like, well, Batman doesn't kill. And he takes off his faceplate and just like, do I look like Batman? Shit. <laughs> And, and I'm pretty. Does the guy drop a coded, or not coded, a um, a charactered out racial slur at that point? He definitely swears. That's what I thought was going on. He definitely drops a swear somewhere at that point, and I, I wasn't sure if I was reading. It was him just swearing, or if he was dropping a racial slur amongst his swear words. That is what I personally would have done at that point. <laughs> Listeners, I'm black. Um, but, and having read uh, other history, I think that's what Ridley was going for. Because that was the kind of thing that would pop up in the Black Lightning issue. By the way, audience out there, if you have not read the other history of the DC Universe, read the other history of the DC Universe. My favorite's the Montoya, but I just, I love Renee Montoya as a character. But it is an absolutely fascinating take on the DC universe told from the point of view of non-white characters. It's brilliantly done. Text with spot illustration. It's a great, great read. Not an easy read, but really very, very good. It is easily my favorite comic of the past four or five years. So I'll jump in with that faceplate removal scene. Uh, so he takes off the plate. Jay says, do I look like the Batman? Uh, the perp says, who the fuck are you? So okay, okay. No, ra- no racial slur on the page, but you know, in his it's mind, in- probably. Oh yeah, it's implied. It is clearly implied. <laughs> oh, and this, 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 <laughs> and this is uh, this is Jace's uh, response, by the way. I'm the guy 
they'll snap your neck and drag your carcass from one side of Gotham to the other. What's that do for you? Undoubtedly, the highlight of those four issues, by far. Very Terry McGinnis. Yes. I ain't that other fucking guy. Fucker. I'm still shocked that we don't get more hints of Batman Beyond in the main DC universe. Uh, Short of Jerry Powers in Super Heavy and Warren McGinnis showing up in Gotham Academy, that's really the only hints we've gotten of the Batman Beyond future. Yeah, that and Batwing's whole, well, current Batwing's costume originally Mm. appeared in New 52 Batman with the Batman Beyond coloring. Yeah, yeah, it did. It's bound to happen. It's going to happen sooner or later. Okay, any last thoughts? Uh, That means it's time to put I Am Batman Begins on the board. All right, well, where do you... Where's your opening bit on this? Again, I like going for that soft underbelly. Above or below blades? Oh, you're killing me, Smalls. Um. And, and I'll emphasize my last point. I think this is a failure of DC editorial. I do not believe this is a successful book on its own merits. I'm sorry, John Ridley. You did the best, but this is... It's kind of a mess, both in terms of story and in terms of artistic output. I would accept it above Blades. Above, right above Blades is the clown at midnight, that completely crazy text Grant Morrison Joker story. This is still probably, as messy as it is, it's more of a comic, quite literally, <laughs> it's sequential art <laughs> than Clown at Midnight. Um, see, I yeah, if you want to go above Blades, I don't think we're looking much higher than Blades. Okay, above that is Zero Gear, which is also messy as all hell, but is also 12 issues. <laughs> this is four, and I almost regret not I don't regret it because of the time it would have entailed to read more comics but the next two issues are kind of a two-parter that wrap up this first arc is maybe six issues but I kind of broke this at when it's jumped out of fear state I wonder if this would have felt better if we had read those last two issues as well because although I, I will say and I'll save this for off mic or possibly some future when we discuss those two issues there's some weirdness with the continuity and how it lines up with some other stuff there too but that remains something that I think the Bat family needs to have a little stricter editorial oversight to make some of this stuff tie together a little better but nonetheless so zero year do you think this goes above zero year It's shorter. Yeah, okay, but I'll also argue Zero Year at least has consistently good art throughout. It's 12 issues by the same artist. And the backups are by the same, a different artist, but the same different artist on the backups. And that's Greg Capullo and Raphael Albuquerque. 
both of whom are really strong artists. Grand Coypel and Segovia are two, but Corey, you can, feel free to chime in on any of this. We, we, we're not bogarting the, if you've read this stuff, please. I liked this more than Zero Year. And I really like Zero Year, which is sad. Hey, hey, don't, don't apologize for the yeah. things you like. Matt should feel bad uh, for some of the things that he likes, but no, you're good. Look, my two favorite Batman stories are uh, Batman and Robin on one side and Batman versus Superman on the other. So I'm okay. A bold play, a bold wrong. play, but you know what? That, look, look, we thank you for coming on the show. We love you. And uh, we'll save the Batman versus Superman talk for another day. That's good. That's good. I think we can put this above zero year above that is favorite things. The one, the Christmas one-off from Mark Miller before he became Mark Miller. And when he, you know, wrote comics that were about something versus writing the most shocking thing he can come up with at any particular moment. For Netflix with a dollar sign. Yep. Above that is Batman Judge Dredd. And I don't think it beats Batman Judge Dredd, which is just completely batshit crazy and just delightful for its complete insanity. Uh, let's drop this at 38 then. How's that? Corey? I was going to say, I think it's below uh, the Miller story. Okay. So what do you think then? We make this the new 39 in between the Miller story and Zero Year? That's what I'd do. Okay. I'm fine with either of those, so I think, I think, how does that sound to you, Will? Works for me. Okay. So that means we now have, I'll be the one to say it this time. Yeah! Oh, no. Okay. You know what, Will? You take such joy in it. We now have 69 stories. <laughs> nice. On the list. Corey, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find your work if they would so like or follow you online if you would so like to be followed? I am on Comics XF, obviously, occasionally, um, and on Twitter at Torterra Kata. Torterra like the Pokemon, Kata like the bad pun. Be prepared for a lot of nonsense if you follow me. I'll put it that way. <laughs> He's a good follow. I'm interesting. Great. So, yes. Uh, Again, thanks for coming on the show, Corey. And that is it for this week. Next week, well, we've talked about them more than a few times, even in this episode. So now it's time to dive deep into the works of one of the most iconic writers in Batman history, Grant Morrison. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June is Dead, Long Live June, Joshua Wheel, Zach Rabaroff, Abigail Hartbaum, and, and now Asimov Fangirl for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on ComicsXF.com. And you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm out of here. Good night, Miami. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff that Will, Corey, and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.